Some of you may have noticed just a few minutes ago that uh, for whatever reason, two of our trees didn't have a light. And I was actually thinking that that was a wonderful illustration because in part, our message today is about a people, God's people, who willfully chose the darkness over the light. Uh, And so Mike, Mike, where are you? Mike, thank you for actually derailing what would have been a really good uh, visual here for this, uh, this sermon here uh, for doing that. But I suppose it still applies because that light, who is, of course, the Lord, was willing to and graciously offer to bring light uh, to that darkness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get into our message this morning. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are the light, and though many of us have chosen the darkness, continue to seek darkness, you and your grace have sent a son to not only die for us, but call us to a new life. And so we pray that as we hear this message today, that we would take it seriously. Uh, We pray that we would seek you and your wisdom, and not the wisdom of this age. Uh, We pray that we would then apply that in each other's lives. Speak to us, help us to increase our faith as we consider this prophecy made so many hundreds of years before it was fulfilled, and your graciousness and intentionality in being purposeful in bringing light to darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're we're at that time of the year when the Christmas trees and lights are up and we're singing these Christmas songs. And some of you may already be done with your Christmas shopping. Others of you are maybe going to take this next week and barely slide into home plate and get all those gifts in. Now, I don't know about you, but rarely do we wonder with Christmas gifts, do we even deserve these gifts? I think we just assume it's Christmas and we're going to get some gifts. Another question you could ask about gifts is how many of us actually remember what we got five years ago? I asked a group of you on Wednesday night how many of you remember. In a room full of about 15 or 20 people, I think there are only two of us that remembered what we got several years ago. And then I increased it. I said, well, how many of you remember what you got 10 or 20 years ago? And nobody remembered. Now, I don't know if that's that big of a surprise. After all, gifts often don't last. Most of us probably don't remember what we received, which is surprising given how much time and energy and emotions are put into them. A gift, of course, can be consumed. It might be food and you finish it. Who here has ever gotten one of Carol DeMand's treats for Christmas? If you've gotten that, you should consider yourself very fortunate. So one of the best desserts we have. Carol, what is that? Is that like a popcorn pretzel thing or what is that that you do every year? Candy clusters by Carol. Yeah, ask her for the recipe. But, but sometimes it's consumed or maybe it wears out if it's a piece of clothing, right? Or sometimes we might lose interest in them. What we might have been interested in a few years ago might not be what we're still interested in. Or maybe when we were kids, that interest doesn't last forever. After all, there are so many fads, aren't there, with toys and such that we often will forget about what happens here. And I think there's supposed to be a slide here with some toys from the... Oh, there we are. Thank you, Lucas, for that help. Who here remembers any of these from the 90s here? Okay. I don't even know what that thing on the right is. I just know that when my sister wanted it, it scared the daylights out of me. I mean, that thing on the left looks decent, but that thing on the right, my gosh. Right? But these are fads, aren't they? They go with the passage of time. Now, in today's message, that's going to be in Isaiah chapter, five, uh, chapter 8 starting at verse 5 through chapter 9, verse 7, we are going to hear about a gift that not only is undeserved, but unlike so many gifts that we give to each other, does not fade away, or at least should not fade away in our hearts. Now, Isaiah chapter 9, as as I read it in a little bit, you're going to notice that it's a very familiar passage if you've been a Christian for a while. 
You probably hear it around this time of the year. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, for secular audiences, Handel's Messiah has made this passage in Isaiah 9 pretty well known as well. Now, my hope is that by looking at a passage today that can be so familiar, but by looking at the preceding chapter in chapter 8 and getting a better sense of the context there, we get a better idea here of an appreciation for not only the prophecy of this coming Savior, but our need for such a Savior as well. Now, before we dive into the main points today, I want us to understand the larger context of where our passage is found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapters 7 through 39, 7 through 39, ask a very fundamental question. They ask, who will you trust, God or man? God or political leaders or military power? Now, that larger context can be helpful because if you're anything like me and you read a book like Isaiah, it can be confusing. There are 66 chapters in this book. It's huge. Sometimes you go from one chapter to the next, it doesn't even go in chronological order. And so if you were to take the time to read these 33 chapters from 7 to 39, you're going to be helped to know to anchor yourself whenever you're confused. Oh yeah, the main point is what? Isaiah is speaking to God's people through the Lord, asking them, who will you trust, God or man? Now before we go further, I want to get two points out of the way that I think are going to help us today. First, we're going to be talking quite a lot today about trusting God more than political leaders. And as I say that, it can be easy to take away that all government leaders are bad or be really cynical about the government. But that's not the intent or point of this passage. Some of you know I used to work in Washington, and I had the privilege of meeting presidents and cabinet secretaries and governors and senators. These are people made in God's image, and God's word tells us to respect them and to pray for them. They bear tremendous responsibility. And so I want us to see that on the one hand, This passage tells us not to give our unyielding trust to them, yet we should still have some respect for them today. Second, when you hear today that we're to trust God over political leaders, it will be easy to think of a political leader that you disagree with. I did a dry run of this study with some guys the other day, and so many were all too quick to want to point out the name of someone specifically they didn't like. No surprise, is it? Let me ask you, encourage you to think of someone you agree with, whose policies you align with, who maybe you voted for. That will actually, I think, help you apply the point of this passage more so than easily dismissing someone you disagree with, which really costs you nothing to do, as you hold up your preferred political leaders and policies next to the glory of the gospel and this coming Savior. Now, chapter 7, verse 1 of Isaiah, we don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you briefly what it says. It tells us that this section of Isaiah that we read today occurs during the reign of King Ahaz of Judah, around 735 B.C., 735 B.C. So this is 700 or so years before the coming of Christ. Ahaz is the father of Hezekiah, who I'll mention later on in today's message. And so with that in mind, the original recipients then of these passages we're going to read today here would be Judah. It would be Judah. Now, Judah, like its northern neighbor Israel, in theory, in theory, should have had no problem answering that question, who do you trust, God or man? They had so many years, if you know your Old Testament well, of God's faithfulness. Unfortunately, as should be no surprise, they were not trusting him. And that brings us to our first of three points for today. First of our three points, dismissing God has consequences. Number one, dismissing God has consequences. 
A few weeks ago, one of our elders, Kurt Ellis, started a Sunday school class called the Unsaved Christian. You might wonder, well, what is an unsaved Christian? Is that even possible? The class is based on a book by a pastor from the Southeast. The Southeast, of course, is a culture not unlike our very own in Grand Rapids. And the book highlights the idea that just because someone says they're a Christian doesn't necessarily make it so. For many, that is, going to church could be just a ritual. For others, they just want a teddy bear version of Jesus and not the genuine article. Now, if you're here today and you understand yourself to not be a Christian, first of all, I want to say I'm appreciative that you're here. I'm thankful for whoever invited you here. But maybe you're surprised to hear in a sermon the admission that not everyone who says they're a Christian really is one. Now, unfortunately, such inconsistencies have been around from the very start of the Old Testament. It's what Pastor Dave talked about a few weeks ago at the start of this series. It's about sin. We admit it as Christians, we often fall short of what we claim to believe. All the more reason we need a Savior that we'll talk about in chapter 9. All the more reason we need to be part of a good gospel-preaching church where we're reminded of what we believe and encouraged to apply it. So again, it should not surprise us, given the pervasity of sin, that in a passage of Isaiah that asks the fundamental question, who do you trust, that once again God's people willfully chose the wrong answer. Now there are three main ways I want us to see in chapter 8 how God's people didn't trust him. And we're going to take a look at the first one found in verses 5 through 7 of Isaiah chapter 8. Verses 5 through 7 of chapter 8 in Isaiah. It says, The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria with all its pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. The first thing we see here is that God's people trusted in their own achievement rather than the Lord. They trusted in their own achievement rather than the Lord. And how do we see that? It says here that these gently flowing waters of Shiloh were rejected by them. Now, if you know anything about a creek or a stream, it's pretty gentle. Nothing very impressive. Nothing very dangerous. And yet, if you know ecology well, a creek or a stream is very vital to the local ecological life. And so it is with the Lord, isn't it? Sometimes to us, if we're not careful, not very impressive, especially when considered and compared to governmental power or the military or money or things of this world. And yet the Lord, like that gently flowing stream of Shiloh, gives life. And so what Isaiah is saying here, what he is told to tell them from the Lord is, you people have rejected me. Instead, what have you done? You have chosen to rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. These were two kings, one in Syria, one in the northern kingdom of Israel. And they apparently were rejoicing that they overthrew them. And they assumed that that victory was their own and that now they were safe and secure. This despite the fact that over and over again in the Old Testament, the Lord made clear to his people, it is me who gives you the victory. How often have so many of us sat in church for years and decades, heard the same gospel message, and completely forget it when things of this world seem so much more impressive, more tangible and secure. But relying on their own achievement wasn't the only way God's people didn't trust him. We see a second way. You know, oftentimes when we read the Old Testament or the New Testament, 
We see judgment comes for various reasons. It might be sexual immorality. It might be greed. It might be not caring for the poor. But here in our passage, in verses 11 through 13, we see something else. Isaiah says here, The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. And what was the way of those people? He said, Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. I'll say this again. Judgment here comes not for the typical heavy hitters. Sexual immorality. Wanting too much money. Injustice. It comes because God's people were participating in and believing in conspiracies. Now you say, well, why is this so bad? Conspiracies have a certain appeal, don't they? Even in our modern age today. They provide a means of interpreting our world. Especially when things don't go the way that we'd like. Well, naturally, we want to understand and interpret why. Maybe it's an election. Maybe it's the assassination of a president. Or a mass killing. Of course we want to know why. Of course we want answers. So the desire to have questions answered, to address the unknown, to address the fears, to address the senseless, that is not in itself the problem. God expects us to want answers and perspective. But he says that I am the interpreter. Fear me. Regard me as holy. Regard me as pure and the one who gives answers. Look to me to make sense of life in a fallen world. But what did Judah do? Despite having years and years of a testimony of God's faithfulness. Well, in verses 12, 13, we see they say thanks, but no thanks. We're going to side with these conspiracies here. We're going to side with this worldly wisdom to tell us how to make sense of our life as turmoil is surrounding us. And so by indulging in these conspiracies, what was going on? God's people didn't acknowledge him. They pushed him aside. Have you experienced that in recent years? Have you seen people do that? Get back to God's word. Get back to remembering that God is the one who gives insight and is in control of history. Now, unfortunately, it wasn't just conspiracies that Judah was turning to. Take a look at verses 19 through 20 of Isaiah chapter 8. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists, who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living, to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. So once again, instead of turning to God in his word, what are his people doing here? They're not just going to conspiracies now, they're going to the occult. They want wisdom from the dead, their ancestors. What's the problem though? If you know anything about Israel and Judah, These people weren't that much better than the current people. Instead of fearing God and acknowledging him, once again, instead of seeing him as the sanctuary that he is, they look to the dead to address their problems. Much like King Saul did when he sought the witch of Endor and was condemned for that. You know, you can learn a lot about somebody based on who they seek wisdom or counsel from when life gets hard. Do they seek biblical, gospel-exalting counsel? Do they go to the world? Do they, do they try to make up their own truths and realities where their God 
and they get to decide what's right and wrong. This is why I'm encouraged that so many of you here in their 60s, 70s, and 80s are willing to come talk. Not because you necessarily think that I'm going to have the exact same experiences as you, but because you're looking for biblical, gospel-centered perspective. We'll talk more about that wisdom and the wonderful counsel later on when we get to Isaiah 9. But for Judah, I want you guys to see they did not want such biblical perspective. And we see the impacts here in chapter 8 in three ways. Number one, as we've already mentioned, there was judgment that would come in the form of Assyria. Now, this is ironic. They thought that they dodged a threat in Israel and Syria only for the, for the bigger threat in Assyria to come as God's chosen instrument. Because they relied on their own ways, this came. But we also see that there was distance from God. Did you notice there in verses 14 to 15, saying that if the Lord Almighty is the one that these people feared, that he would be a sanctuary for both houses of Israel. He would be a stone, though, that causes men to stumble if people did not seek him. And so instead of finding God as a refuge, he became a stumbling block. You ever notice that? The more and more you go away from seeking the Lord and his wisdom, the more and more his word and his people even become a stumbling block, the less and less that you want to maybe even be at church. And so if you're here this morning, you're struggling with that, and you came anyway, I'm really thankful for that. Let me encourage you to just dive more and more into God's word so that he ceases to be that stumbling block and becomes more of that refuge. But we also see lastly here another impact of Judah dismissing the Lord, and this is the most disturbing. By looking to conspiracies and spiritists and mediums and relying on themselves, they didn't receive any light, no wisdom, no hope. Why? Because none of those were based in the perspective of God's word and his ways. And so there was darkness and fear and distress. Now, I do want to be clear and fair here. Secular thought can have some value. Whether it is in political theory or sociology, psychology, science, or economics, in God's common grace, we can appreciate what these fields have to offer. We have many people here who work in psychology and the medical field, and various fields here. But no man-made ideology, we need to see here, no man-made solution is infallible. It contains error. What is the only source of inerrant and infallible information? God's Word. Viewing a societal problem slowly through the lens of a conservative, a liberal, a libertarian, a medical doctor, a public health official, an economist, or an educator, or a sociologist, or psychologist, what is that going to do? It's going to have some limits, doesn't it? Why? Only God's word and his wisdom is pure and complete and whole. And you know what? If you work in those fields, it's okay that there's limits to that. We shouldn't expect something in this world to provide that comprehensive a solution, as long as you have the humility to admit that and see the limits of your fields. So you wonder then what does have that ability? And we'll get to that in our next points as we go along. For now, I want to see that in verse 22, because God's people looked to such worldly wisdom to solve worldly problems, they kept spiraling down. They went not just into partial darkness, but into utter darkness. That's because dismissing God has consequences. I wonder, have you found yourself in recent years being party to 
or indulging in or promoting some conspiracies. And I wonder, have they really provided you with any answers to what you were looking for? Perhaps even more important, what impact have they had on your relationships here in the church, with your spouse, with your kids? What impact have they had on your relationships with non-believers in your life, like your coworkers? If I were to ask your family or coworkers what they think about when they think of you, what you talk about most often, what you're passionate about, what would they say? As Christians, we want our words to have weight. We want our words to have gravity, to count. We want our words to be taken seriously. If we are known for peddling conspiracies, why would a non-Christian believe anything we say about the gospel? You do realize that from Matthew 27, we see there were plenty of people, even in Jesus' time, that were thinking that this whole idea of a resurrection and a Savior was but a conspiracy. And so we see Pilate says, hey, go take care of this whole thing at the grave, or this deceit will be worse than the first. We read in Jeremiah 37 that there were many that thought him and Isaiah were a bunch of people peddling conspiracies because they would say, rely on the Lord and not on your political leaders. And so they beat Jeremiah. Again, as Christians, we want our words to have weight. We want to be people of truth. You know, about a month ago, some of you were pretty disappointed in our state's elections. I remember hearing from some of you, though, saying that God is sovereign. And that just as he did with Assyria, he puts and moves people into power to do his bidding. That is a right response to making sense of a world when things don't go the way you were hoping to. The good news is, if you found yourself not relying on the Lord... If you found yourself seeking worldly wisdom at the expense of going to God or indulging in conspiracies, the good news is that God is gracious. Look back there at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 8. 8 through 10 of chapter 8. Notice that while it does say that, yes, while Assyria will sweep into Judah and swirl over it, passing through it, it says here that that damage will only reach up to the neck. What is that about there, reaching up to the neck? In other words, God will not totally destroy Just as he did not totally destroy in the time of Adam and Eve or Noah, so he will not totally destroy here. And look at what that last word there is in verse 8. It says, Emmanuel, God with us. Even amidst this idolatry, God is willing to be with his people. And that takes us to our second point for today. Our second point is that God graciously addresses suffering. God graciously addresses suffering. I wonder when you see suffering in those around you, I wonder how do you respond, especially when you know that that suffering was brought upon that person's own choices. Some of us, if you've noticed, have a tendency towards being all justice and consequences and rules. Others of us tend to be more gracious and overlooking. Of course, either extreme doesn't really help the person, does it? If it's all condemnation and canceling somebody, you still haven't given them the tools to change. If it's all overlooking, you also haven't given them the tools to change. They haven't suffered the consequences. Now, as usual, the good news here is that God provides 
the most wise way that avoids either of those extremes. We saw in chapter 8 consequences of these actions. We saw a glimmer of his grace. And in chapter 9, we see more fully now what he does amidst these people's sufferings in verses 1 through 5, where it says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And so we see here in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 9, that in Judah's spiritual and moral darkness that we talked about there in verse 21 and 22, God is willing to bring light. Verse 3 tells us that God addresses practical needs. He is not just about the spiritual, he addresses the practical as well. These people would increase in number. They will have provisions like food and other necessities, and their joy will increase. You see, this was a people that were made to feel small by their oppressors. They're burdened by the physical and material oppression they face from these tormentors. And in verse 5, we see that wars, these boots of war, will no longer be necessary. Now again, for these people, that sounds just way too good to be true, given how constant there were wars. I don't know about you, but when you read verses 1 through 5, that can be kind of hard to relate to as relatively prosperous Americans living mostly in a prosperous part of Grand Rapids. We live in a time and city where constant wars right on our streets probably are not a reality. We don't live in certain parts of Europe in the 1940s or in modern-day Ukraine. Most of us probably don't live in poverty or constant hunger. So how do we relate to this? Do you ever feel the weight of your sin at war within you? Your desires and behaviors contradicting God's word as Paul talks about in Romans 7. Maybe you get an idea of how how oppressive and how powerful that, that, that tug of war is then. Is your home a place that doesn't have peace? Is your family life marred by conflict? Some of you know that growing up, I never assumed peace in my home. I assumed that whenever I would go home, my mother and father would be fighting and yelling at each other. And so while I didn't like school, I enjoyed staying at school more because it was easier to be there. If you struggle with any of those, maybe you have some idea of how encouraging this would have been for Isaiah's original audience. Burdens are lifted. Peace is promised. Light comes to darkness. I want to encourage us in two takeaways of how we can apply these first five verses. Again, verses that might be hard for us to relate to. The first is recount God's faithfulness during hardships. Recount God's faithfulness during hardships. We saw in the previous point that in chapter 8, verse 20, Isaiah says to the people, to the law and to the testimony. In other words, in this turmoil, remember the testimony of how God has worked in your life. We see that also in verse 4 of chapter 9. By referring to Midian's defeat, 
What is Isaiah doing there? He reminds them of Judges chapter 6 and 7, when Gideon, through God's grace, took an army in and took down the oppressive regime of the Midianites. In talking about that yoke and the bar across their shoulders, Isaiah is trying to remind them of the Exodus and that deliverance there. And why is he doing that? He wants to make it clear it is God and God alone that delivers here. Do not seek these other sources of would-be saviors. How about you? You know, this Christmas season can be a time of great joy. But it can also be a time of great pain. Some of you have lost loved ones this year and will have an empty seat at the table. Others of you maybe are going through health issues or difficulties at work. I mentioned earlier, some of you maybe have no peace in the home. Now you say, maybe some of you don't have any of that. Maybe your family's doing okay on the surface. But that's it. Your family relationships are kind of shallow. And you wonder, how do we elevate our conversations? Whether you're wondering what a Christian does amidst real pain, or how to elevate and deepen family relationships, the answer is the same. Recount God's faithfulness. Share with others of how God has worked in your life, just as Isaiah does here, to remind his readers, look here. Follow this God's ways, not the other's ways. A few days ago, I was talking to a young man who whose mother and sister have been experiencing conflict for years. And he's about ready to throw in the towel. He says, I can't stand it. It's so stressful. And it seems like nobody here wants to change. So I asked him, how has God used this trial to help you to become more like Christ? And he said that he calls his mother now more often than he used to. Now, some of you say that's no big deal. And maybe it's no big deal because you have a great relationship with your mother. But this young man does not. For him to be willing to enter into somebody else's hardship, to bring himself to that stressful level, knowing that his mother needs that. Oh, that is a wonderful, tangible picture of the gospel, isn't it? So this guy came to see that the goal of the conversation not was his own comfort, not not for laughs but rather to be a blessing to his mother and to grow in Christ. That is the perspective that he needed. And that is what we can offer each other when we encourage each other to recount God's faithfulness. We don't need to deny the reality of the pain of our circumstances. We do need to do as Isaiah does here, recount God's faithfulness. A second way we apply this passage here in these five verses is to obviously have compassion on those who are suffering, especially for those of us who are so theologically conservative. Have you ever noticed sometimes we focus more on the person's sin than the need to be an example of God's grace in their life? It is easy for us to point out sin, isn't it? Especially when it is someone else's. If we struggle with that, then we need to read passages like this. The whole point of grace is what? That it's unmerited. Practically, what do we do? Go home, get a piece of paper out. Write down all the sins that you know you've been forgiven of. Just even in this last week, maybe the last few months, write them down. Be specific. These should be embarrassing. And the next time you find it hard to be gracious to someone who has dug their own grave, get that piece of paper out and remember what God has done for you. And go and do likewise. 
This is where I'm also thankful for ministries like Alpha or Community Kids that Mike talked about in the announcements. Many people in these ministries that we have an opportunity to reach are there sometimes, not always, but sometimes through choices that they've made. And what is our response? We want them to know the gospel. We want them to tangibly experience God's love. And let me say, so many that are in those ministries like Alfred Communicates, let's be honest, they have day-to-day experiences different than 95% of us here. What a wonderful way to tangibly understand what other people's lives and hardships are more like. So let me encourage you to find out more about those as well. Well, let's turn to our third and last point here. Thus far, we've talked about the importance of where we seek perspective in a fallen world. We've talked about God's grace. Our key points have been that dismissing God has consequences and that God graciously addresses suffering. And now when we turn to our final point here, it's going to be a point that brings all these points together. Because this point is trust an unlikely savior. Trust an unlikely savior. We've been talking about governmental leaders quite a bit. It's probably no surprise for you guys to find out that 60% of the time in a presidential election, the taller candidate wins. Should be no surprise there. This is why I haven't run for president yet. I probably have no chance. But see, here's the thing. You know, I look at these trees, and I look at them every year, and I'm pretty sure this is supposed to be Pastor Brett, Pastor Jory, and me. Uh, now, with Pastor Dave, I'm not sure where that, that now, now where we go, though, or maybe Michelle Carroll or something, but uh, I'm pretty sure you guys are praying a joke on me. Uh, but anyway, it's not just our country, is it, that has in mind that a great leader is supposed to be really tall. How many of you can remember when the Israelites were choosing a king, they wanted Saul? Was it because of his great moral credibility? Certainly not. It is because, as they said, that he was a head taller than everybody else. Now, when we think of a savior or leader, a lot goes into our minds about what makes a good leader, which is why, as we turn our attention to verses 6 through 7 of chapter 9, the first description of this coming savior is one that actually surprises our sensibilities. Listen in as I read verses 6 through 7 here of chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So Isaiah 9, 6 says that this deliverer, this savior for his people will be a child, not a seven-foot warrior. Not some wealthy person who's able to buy or fund a large army. Not some intellectual who can outsmart the competition. But a child. Now you say, well, maybe this child will grow up to be seven feet tall. To be a mighty warrior or become a wealthy person or an intellectual. But that's not what we read here. Someday at the second coming, Christ probably will be more of what we would expect, so to speak, of someone like this. But for now... His people were promised a child. You see, a baby would be vulnerable. And there's also a humility in the Savior coming as a baby, having to depend on others. Some of you mentioned on Wednesday night as I was previewing this message, also mentioned that a child would not have much in the way of worldly influence or connections. 
that you would want some savior or leader to have. So by referring to this deliverer as a child, Isaiah wants his readers to know, do not expect the expected here. Do not expect a political or military leader. That is not what the Lord is up to here. God's ways are not the world's ways. But the Savior being a child isn't the only reason why the word unlikely could be used to describe him. The rest of verses 6 and 7 tells us even more. We see that this child is called Wonderful Counselor. It means that his wisdom is complete. It's flawless. The answers are always correct. Now, some of you are wondering, can we hire that guy and get rid of the current counselor at our church? Not sure he's available, though he does give us his word from what's to base counsel. And you may think, well, who wouldn't want such a wise counselor, a wonderful counselor? But again, as with the things of the Lord, we need to be careful here that this Savior's wisdom is not the same of the wisdom of this age. A quick overview of some passages in the New Testament tells us that. In the Sermon on the Mount, in his very first sermon, when Jesus talks about, here is what life under my lordship looks like, he gives a completely upside-down view of the world. He says, to be my disciple, you must admit that you're a sinner, admit your weaknesses, be humble. It is those who mourn who will be comforted. And in Romans 12, we get a series of points about all the implications of the gospel. If you know your book of Romans well, you know that that is a doctrine and a treatise of the fact that we need a Savior from our sins. And in chapters 12 and on, Paul says, here's how you're going to live if you really believe this. Now look at everything here on this slide, and this isn't even everything in Romans 12. And look at that, and I wonder, if you're a Republican, can you imagine doing any of this for a Democrat? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you're a Democrat, could you imagine doing this for a Republican? Some of you are thinking, I couldn't even do this for my spouse and kids. Never mind doing it for a Democrat or Republican. But if we cannot do this, what's the problem? These are all practical implications of the gospel. And so if we can't even do this, this upside-down wisdom and way of living, do we really understand what the gospel is? Hate what is evil. Honor one another above yourselves. Bless those who persecute you. Mourn with those who mourn. That's what that young man was doing that I shared a few minutes ago. Do not be proud. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Is that what we see on CNN or Fox News these days? I don't think so. Some of you have asked me, when you were in D.C., you were trying to get Democrats and Republicans to work together, and now you're doing marriage counseling, and you ask me which one is harder. And I say, I think the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? But look what it says here. Does all that in Romans 12 seem to be too much? Too much of a cost, perhaps? If so, you might be onto something. You might be onto something because of what we see in 1 Corinthians. There in 1 Corinthians, we see what? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That previous slide may seem foolish to you when you're in conflict with others. With others you could not possibly think of ever agreeing with. But if we can't do that, do we understand what this gospel is and who this Savior is, why he is such a wonderful counselor? It says that we are being saved through the power of the Lord there when we believe in that. And speaking of power, how encouraging must it have been for Isaiah's audience to see 
to see that this deliverer, as it says in verse 6, is mighty God who has the strength to, do, to defeat true evil. So this Savior isn't just someone who's wise, but he has the strength to do, defeat true evil. Now here again, though, we have to be careful not to be tricked in reading this and assuming it is exactly how we would think it to be. This does not mean that this Savior commands some large army or that he is a head taller than everyone else. Now, I want to be clear, if God wants to command an army, he can do it. If he wants to wipe out his enemies with physical force, he did that plenty of times in the Old Testament. And when Christ comes again, it's likely he'll probably have a large army. But that's not what we're talking about today. We are talking about his plan of salvation. And that plan of salvation is not a military or a political one. The child was not here to fight wars or to hold political office. Isn't that what Peter found out in Matthew 26? When people try to come arrest Jesus, Peter takes out a sword, cuts one of the officials, and Jesus says, do you not think I could call all these angels here to defend me? That's not what my kingdom is about, though, here. What about King David? A man after God's own heart, a mighty warrior, who nevertheless decides to do what? Count how many mighty men he had. And what was God's response to that? He wasn't pleased with David. And he asked, in whom do you trust? In your military or in me? When we think of new ruling party, again, we probably think of those who are the most wealthy or those who can command the biggest army. <laughs> That's certainly what our country likes to think of itself. But the bigger question is, what is going to do away with all this immorality, all this coercion, violence, and oppression that plagues our society? What is able to lift the yoke of slavery that's promised in verse 4 of Isaiah 9? What's mighty enough? A huge army? More money? Yeah, that's what politicians think, right? Just throw more money at the problem and it'll go away. Just send in the military and it'll go away. Sometimes that might be the answer. But certainly not always. What is strong enough? Oh, it's the humility of Christ, isn't it? Being willing to die on a cross for our sins. Being willing to come as a child. It is in conquering the power of sin, which is accomplished through the coming of Christ on the cross. In conquering the power of sin, that Isaiah can say that this deliverer is a prince of peace. Bringing peace not only between God and man, but human beings with each other. It is in this Christ who did not consider equality with God as something to demand or fight for, but who is willing to make himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. It is in that that we are provided a template for how human relationships can thrive and how wars and oppression can cease. Can a political leader or a tax cut or a Supreme Court justice or universal health care achieve any of that in breaking the power of sin? No, it cannot. And what political leaders have a reign without end? Isaiah says that this Savior will have a reign without end. In my younger years, it was guys like Donald Rumsfeld, Teddy Kennedy, and Strom Thurmond who were in power. And it seemed like they were in power forever. It seemed like they would be in office forever. But their days came to an end, didn't it? And what about Queen Elizabeth, who died in September of this year? I remember reading newspapers, and there were so many quotes from everyday people who said something like, I don't remember a time 
without the queen. I can't imagine life without her. But her time came to an end too, didn't it? Now, as I said in the beginning, the point of all this in our message today is not to look down on our leaders. They're made in God's image. We should have respect for them and pray for them. But rather, it's to put them in the right place like anything. Have the last several years maybe revealed some political idolatries of certain leaders in your heart? If so, you're not alone. But admit that. And remember, God is gracious. And if that's you, take a piece of paper out when you go home or sometime this week. And in one column, write down the name, the specific person or political party that you were tempted to love more than the Lord. Write that name down. And in another column, write down the name of Jesus. Hold that person or party up to this passage of who Christ is. Again, not out of disrespect, but to be clear in your own mind of who the true Savior is. That's actually what Isaiah does himself. I mentioned Hezekiah earlier. I mentioned that this passage of ours today is in a section of Isaiah, of chapters 7 to 39, that asks, who do you trust? And at the very end of this section, in chapters 36 to 39, Isaiah does the very exercise I just mentioned. Those last few chapters are about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a great king. Israel was tempted to see him as his promised savior. He was a mighty warrior. He was wise. He did away with all the idols in the land and instituted spiritual reforms. Can you see why Israel potentially saw him as the savior? And so Isaiah, knowing that this was a possibility, intentionally orders those last few chapters in this section of this book by showing all of Hezekiah's faults. He is someone who is frail. He will die. He is someone, when he is told he will die, decides to bargain with God, saying, God, you remember how much I've done for you, so save me. I mean, who here thinks it's a good idea to bring your resume to the Lord? That's just bad theology there. But he thought so. When told he would be healed, he asked for a sign. What does Jesus say about those who ask for a sign? Kind of lacking in faith. When Babylon envoys would come, Hezekiah wanted their approval. He was a people pleaser. So he shows Babylon all of the treasures there. And then lastly, when he's told that your people would be carried off into Babylon, you know what this guy does? He says, oh, it's a good thing it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Such selfishness. Now again, none of this is to say that Hezekiah was a bad king. What Isaiah was doing was to show that he is not that savior. About a year ago, I was meeting with a young man in our church, just to give you an example of this happening in our own body here. And, and this young man loved a certain political figure. And he had the bracelets of this guy. And he had a t-shirt and a hat. And he was completely decked out. And I think his, his bottle also had pictures of this guy. And he came in because he wanted to talk about some conflict that he was having with in-laws. This was so bad that there was a chance that, that the relationship would be permanently broken. And so we got to talking. And I gave him as one of his assignments for homework to write down all the flaws that he knows about his favorite political leader. And then the next homework was to write down what he appreciates about someone he absolutely disagrees with politically. And this young man came back and he did the assignment. I am not saying that is the only reason for what I'm about to say. But maybe he was learning what? 
to apply Romans 12. When your enemy is hungry, feed him. And to be objective about his preferred political leader. Maybe he was learning to apply the gospel. And so this guy shared with me a few days ago what was potentially a situation where he would no longer have a relationship with his in-laws. He's celebrating Christmas this year with them. My friends, that is the gospel there. That is the gospel there. How long are you willing to wait for relationships to be restored or something to happen? Isaiah 9 happens about 600 years before the coming of Christ. In the meantime, Babylon happens. I wonder what it would have been like to be one of God's people wondering in Babylon this was still going to happen. A hundred years after Babylon, Alexander the Great comes into power. And what does he do? He wants the entire regions to adopt the Hellenistic culture and the Greek language. And you might be wondering, where is God in all this? Where is his Savior? Well, he was actually pretty busy. It is because Alexander the Great insisted that the Hellenistic culture and the Greek language be used in all those countries around there, that the New Testament spread quicker. And of course, the Romans would come into power, and they built roads. And who would use those roads to spread the gospel? Paul. God is up to something, isn't he? When we come back next week, and we hear what will probably be a familiar passage in Luke 2, let's not let that familiarity non-response, but to remember all the twists and turns and unlikeliness that happens in history for us to get to that point, that God is willing to graciously address suffering, but that there are consequences for dismissing the Lord, and that the answer is to trust in an unlikely Savior by believing in Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you and praise you that you have not left us to our own devices to make sense of this world. You have given us your pure word that is flawless, that no conspiracy or worldview will ever be able to match. We thank you for your grace towards sinners. Help us to go and do likewise to others. We pray for all this so that you would be magnified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll see you tonight at the Christmas recital.